This conversation has been made for the International School for Philosophy in Netherlands. I came there to present the Dutch translation of our book, Ukraine in Histories and Stories, Essays by Ukrainian Intellectuals. The Dutch translation of the book was published by the International School for Philosophy. All revenues from the book sales will go to Ukrainian charity funds. The introduction to this podcast is in Dutch, but the conversation itself is in English. Op 29 november 2022 spreek ik bij de ISVW in Leusden met Vladimir Jermalenko. Hij stelde het boek samen met de titel Oekraïne, geschiedenissen en verhalen, verschenen bij ISVW-uitgevers. Het is een bonte verzameling artikelen, essays en interviews met filosofen, schrijvers, historici, journalisten en activisten. En al die bijdragen gaan over allerlei aspecten van Oekraïne en vooral aspecten rond de relatie met Rusland. Vladimir Jermolenko is filosoof, politicoloog, hij is directeur analyses bij Internews Ukraine, hoofdredacteur van ukraineworld.org en hij is universitair hoofddocent aan de Kiev Mohila Academy. Daarnaast is hij voorzitter van PEN Oekraïne, maar tegenwoordig is hij vooral ook fulltime Oekraïens. Voorafgaand aan de officiële presentatie van het boek gingen we even aan tafel zitten om deze opname te maken. This conversation is a bit uncomfortable for me because uh, this podcast is usually in Dutch um, and we always talk about philosophy and matters that touch on it. But this book appears at the time of Russia's invasion of neighboring Ukraine and during the war that's still going on. So talking about uh, philosophy, that might be a bit artificial. Uh, so I ask, uh, philosophizing in wartime, is that possible at all, Vladimir? That's a very good question. Welcome That's in the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to be here and I'm so grateful for, uh, for this house to translate the book that we made in 2019. This is really a collection of essays of one, one of the best Ukrainian intellectuals, writers, historians, philosophers. Uh, and the Dutch translation is the first actually translation. It, it's the book was published in English and Ukrainian, so the Dutch translation is the first after English to appear. Uh, I think philosophy and literature during the wartime is, at, at one aspect, very difficult, of course. But on the other hand, culture has always difficult relations with, with violence and with war because we can say that European culture is born from the epics of Homer and uh, the, the war epics. We can say that the culture itself, the you know, sculpture and painting, was touching the aspect of the war from the uh, very early ages. We can say that you know, one of the greatest philosophies were born during times which were very difficult for humanity. For example, the 15th, the 16th century, the times of the Baroque. Uh, you had Spinoza, for example, right? Uh, there was Descartes, there was, there was Leibniz and others after the religious wars. We can say that, for example, the 19th century philosophies were born out of 
difficult wars of uh, Napoleonic wars, etc. We can say that well, the key currents of the 20th century philosophy were born in the by the generation of those people who, you know, were thinking about the war in the 50s and in, in the 60s. It's a fruitful time uh, for a philosopher. But not say it's uh, a, it's a fruitful time, but of course uh, we cannot say this really because uh, of course the war is there is nothing good in it. There is there is suffering, there is violence, there is loss of life, there is loss of future, there is uh, very little horizon for for thinking, for acting. But at the same time, it does teach certain lessons and uh, it pushes us to rethink many things. And therefore, I do think that culture, literature, and philosophy are possible during the war and uh, taking lessons from this war. Yeah. What is your actual situation uh, now at home? Uh, where do you live? Uh, at home, uh, I'm living in the suburb of Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, a wonderful city in which I was born, a city with... Uh, with over 1,500 years of history and more. I'm living in a suburb called Brovary, and uh, in February and March, the war came very close to us. It stopped two kilometers from our apartment. The villages uh, around my apartment are almost totally destroyed. Well, there are many, much of destruction. We visited lots of villages around us. And I'm writing the text describing this. And by the way, in our podcast, Explaining Ukraine, uh, which which we make on the Ukraine world, uh, also primarily with my wife, Tetiana Oharka, we talk a lot about this first-hand experience. So if you, if you want to understand, it's in English, the podcast is in English. If you want to understand it, just Google it. It's available everywhere on every podcast platform. But you were there uh, with your wife and children. Yes. You have three of them, uh, I yes. heard. Yes. Uh, you didn't want to flee from there? No, no. So we, we did change the location. We went, of course, for the sake of children of our parents. We have parents which are over or over 60, around 70. So we cha changed the location. We, we moved for several weeks to uh, regions to the western Ukraine. But then I was traveling back and forth with humanitarian missions with, with our minivan, which we bought uh, for our kids to have a big car. Uh, Renault Trafic, uh, the cheapest uh, minivan, <laughs> uh, and uh, and then we just used it for humanitarian things because you might understand that in March there was lots of humanitarian aid coming from Europe and we are so grateful for it, but uh, you just needed to take it and to bring it to kind of to Kiev and to other places. Um, and then we came back when when the Russians the Russians uh, suffered the first major defeat in this war uh, in the battle for Kyiv in late March 2022 20, uh, and as soon as they left in a, in a few weeks we came came back so now our situation is that the Russians are rest renewed the missile strikes on Kyiv and other cities 
we actually uh, the war started for for us with a big missile strike so something you cannot even imagine i remember sitting on the 23rd of february in the evening with my friends in in the bar in the pub and we already knew that this is coming in, in the next days and we were discussing okay if if they launch if the russians la- launch missiles on ukrainian cities what we do what shall we do what shall we the the, the western partners do and this 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 very thought was absolutely unthinkable for me you're you're sitting in a wonderful city very much developing with 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 huge cafes restaurants the uh, the new hedonism the new hedomonism which is developing among ukrainian people who learn how to live how to enjoy their lives and then there are missiles which are coming on on our heads so how can you imagine that and on the next day we were we woke up my children woke up from the huge explosion because there was a massive missile attack on our cities including on my town of Brovary just a few kilometers from us so but then we came back in april and there was a some kind of well there, there was a front line and uh, russians were not really attacking because russians initially were, they were attacking military objects of course also civilians but they were trying to target the military objects now that they, they decided from from october they decided really to attack only civilian object only civilian infrastructure so from the 10th of october we have every week almost every week a massa, uh, massive missile strikes on ukrainian cities 90 missiles per, per day per several hours no electricity hundred, no heating no gas 100 missiles yeah. and uh, and therefore people. we are on the on the brink of blackout uh, blackouts blackouts mean that you don't have electricity you don't have water you don't have mobile connection you don't have internet you don't have heating so if it lasts for several hours it's okay you can survive if it lasts for for, for one day it's already difficult what if it will last for one month And, uh, this is daily life in uh, the present but um if you uh, read your book you can't escape that um it's about history and you have to think about history about uh, identity about language nationalism colonialism uh just the title histories that plural is not uh, for nothing i guess um there's not not a single history for any country but um uh, here you emphasize it uh, there are histories about ukraine Uh, can you explain that? Yeah, I think uh I think there is a big mistake to try to make one history and that's that's what for example uh Russia is trying to do, Putin is trying to do and uh, before That's what the, this war is about. Uh, exactly. Be- before this invasion he was publishing this pseudo historical texts trying to show that there is one line of history uh, and and no other. Indeed history is is a very important in plural because Ukraine is a very pluralistic society a very pluralistic history ethnically pluralistic linguistically religiously so we have we are a place where all three abrahamic religions meet the uh, christianity islam and um, and judaism then uh, all the key currents of the christianity are here as well the orthodoxy uh, Roman Catholics, Greek Catholics, all, all possible Protestants. Uh, the the role of Islam is very important and not in the way how you see it in Western Europe because 
Islam in Ukraine is connected primarily with Crimean Tatars, the, the, the people which also suffers from this Russian colonialism, from the deportations, from mass murder, etc. And Crimean Tatars who are now in the Ukrainian culture, they it's, it's a remarkable combination of the deep tradition and religion and very big modernity. And Ukrainian, uh, I would say that Ukrainian culture right now, it's an interesting thing which finds a compromise between deep past and open future, between tradition and modernity. This is something, I keep telling this, this is something very interesting for the whole Europe, for the whole world, because in different parts of this world, you, ha- you you see this clash, you see the cleavage between tradition and modernity. You have it in in United States, in France, in Germany, in Poland, whatever. In Holland. Uh, in Holland, same, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. in Ukraine, you don't feel it. You feel that people at the same at the same time are rediscovering their tradition, their deep past, because it was erased, it was forgotten. But at the same time, we are very open up to the future. So... Mm, so yeah, therefore it's it's very pluralistic. And for example, uh, when you write a history of Ukrainian um, national emancipation, it's it's one type of history. When you write history of Ukrainian Jews, it's another type of history because for Ukrainian Jews, the movements of Ukrainian national emancipation in 17th century, 18th century, 12, uh, 20th century were sometimes... Uh, uh, very bad, very tragic, you know. So we should look at these two sides of the coin and see how the good, something good, things which are present in Ukrainian textbooks as good things like Bogdan Khmelnytsky or the Haidamaki or whatever else were bad for the Jews or for the Jewish population. Uh, and I think we we should rethink it. For example, the same with Islam. I mean. In the 19th century, you had this narrative that the key battle was, in our history, was the battle between the Slavs, the Cossacks, and the Muslims, with Crimean Tatars, with the Turks, etc. But then you realize that the Cossacks, our key national element, national symbol, these free warriors of the steppe, they are so much imprinted with the Muslim culture, with the Crimean Tatar in the way how they their clothes, in, in 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 their names, in their arms, in their behavior. So it's all. I think the remarkable thing it's it's all to, it it is all to be done. It is all to be studied. Multiculturalism in Ukraine is clear. But uh, uh, Russia has a multicultural uh, tradition as well. But there are differences, and the book is about to express the big differences between um, Russia and uh, Ukraine. And uh, your contribution to this book is named uh, Step, Empire and Cruelty, I translated it this way. And in it you compare Ukraine uh, to Russia along the three lines, the sedentary culture versus the nomad uh, culture, uh, the Republic versus uh, the Empire, and hedonism versus sadism. These controversies should largely define Ukrainian history and identity. Can you explain why you choose um, those three contrasts? Well, I, I choose them not to say very, you know, simplistically that one is Ukraine and another is Russia. I think we are in Eastern Europe, with we are struggling with kind of a similar uh, challenges, but there are different responses. 
For example, Russian political myth has always been based upon the idea of the empire. It doesn't start with the Bolsheviks, it doesn't start with Catherine II, it doesn't start even with the Peter I. It starts from the very uh, origins of the Russian statehood. You can, you can trace it back to the uh, 15th century and the idea that Moscow is the third Rome after the fall of Constantinople. Uh, so the, the crazy idea, some provincial city on the north will be the, the new Rome. Uh, but you can also start it with the Mongol invasion and see how the basically the key traditions of the Moscow statehood are really enshrined into into the traditions of the Mongol Empire. Uh, so it is rather something to do with this nomadic empire of the Eurasian steppe than with with the European traditions. Uh, Ukrainian political tradition has never has never been imperial. Well, there were Ukrainians who contributed at different stages to build the Russian Empire, the Soviet Empire. We should not deny it. But Ukrainian political tradition was rather based upon the idea of, of a republic, of decentralized state, uh, what uh, our intellectuals of 19th century called Hromada, which means community. So everything starts with community. It's much like Aristoteles was describing polis, right? So it's very organic. Politics is a part of nature. So uh, people just get together, they, they organize a community, then they, they decide to enlarge this community. It, it is all bottom-up. It comes from the bottom. It doesn't come from the from the emperor, from the tsar, uh, who just rules by the hierarchy and violence. And I think this tradition is very present in Ukrainian culture, starting from the 18th century at least, intellectually, but physically, uh, politically, in, in social practices, it is present from the medieval ages, from the statehood of, of Rus, which was uh, had the capital in Kiev. It was very much pluralized, kind of a I would I would say it was kind of a similar to you know Germany in the Middle Ages or or maybe the Netherlands and the the Dutch republicanism so you can really or Italian city states so you can really find this with these common common traits and uh, Russia succeeded to persuade everybody since the 18th and 19th century that if you talk about Eastern Europe you only talk about Russian empire and uh, here, for example, what Catherine II did with Crimean Tatars, with Poles and with Ukrainians in a matter of several years in, in the late 18th century is, is essential because she actually destroyed these statehoods which were rather on the side of this pluralistic and republican political culture. And then we are living right now in, with three centuries of the idea that in Eastern Europe it's only empire, it's only Russia, it's only Russian empire, which is a lie, which is not true, because before the 18th century we had very deep traditions in the Eastern Europe, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Rzeczpospolita, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the Crimean Tatar Khanate, the, and the Ukrainian Cossackdom. And I think now we are, we are actually in a situation when this Republican, or you can say democratic uh, democracy. De democracy, I think it was born as a kind of a continuation and extension of the Republican idea. Uh, it is now become stronger. And uh, my hope is that 
Ukrainian struggle also will contribute to to democratization and um, de-imperialization of the Eastern Europe. Yeah, and uh, I was wondering what uh, the antipode hedonism versus sadism is. That's a strange. Well, uh, that's uh, that's uh, the thing is that I think we should look at the 20th century now with the with the, with a fresh eye. Uh, because I, I don't think that people in the Western Europe uh, have a clear idea what 20th century in Eastern Europe meant. And there are many, many, many things that you can you can analyze it. But one of the things which I take, uh, it's the attitude to pleasure and to, to happiness. And uh, I think that in the Western Europe, basically, at a certain moment... Precisely, I think 19th century was really based upon the idea of suffering everywhere. So you have this romantic idea that suffering leads to a better life, to improvement, and you have all the European literature really in this idea, which was, of course, the secular reinterpretation of the Christian idea of, of, of suffering, resurrection, uh, redemption. But then 20th century came, and 20th century uh, was telling... Uh, van de Siegel, etc., was kind of a hinting that modernization should lead to expansion of, of happiness and expansion of pleasure rather than expansion of suffering. Then, of course, you have a very important, very tr- tragic episode with the fascism and Nazism, which were trying, of course, they killed so, so many people, but were sending a signal that no, 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 Uh, progress means suffering and uh, progress means sacrificing certain people and killing certain people. Uh, but then after the Second World War, I think the Western culture went with these lines that, no, it was everything with the fascism and Nazism was bad, of course. So we need to, per- we need to see modernization as the exp- expansion of the room for happiness and for pleasure. These were good things about it. There were bad things about it. I mean, consumerism, and uh, which led to now to environmental disaster, etc. But but th- this is the frame. In Eastern Europe, in the Soviet Union, the frame was different. So when Lenin came to power, he didn't think about happiness and pleasure. He was saying, "You will get pleasure somewhere, happiness somewhere in the future." Before that, we will sacrifice. You will need to sacrifice uh, many things, and we will kill many people. Just recently, we had the anniversary of Holodomor, which is a, a genocide against Ukrainian peasants by Stalin in 32-33. At least four million people killed in, in, in just uh, two years. And uh, why was that? Because basically... St- For Stalin, sacrificing people didn't mean much thing. So it was it was a kind of a an, an idea. One Same dead man is a dead man, and a million is statistics. Yeah, that is his uh, exactly. Quote, uh, so basically, Soviet Union was based upon idea that you have you don't have a right to get pleasure. You don't have a right to uh, your happiness will be somewhere in a distant future, as svetlaya budushe, as it was called in Russian. The bright future which will come you, you you don't know when probably with your with your in with your kids or somebody else definitely not now not now definitely <laughs> no, no. and uh, 
This is why Soviet Union collapsed, in a sense, because, in a sense, the Soviet Union, when it was, you know, getting ideas from the West, rock music, you know, informal culture, the the sexual revolution, whatever, it just understood that well, this is all interesting and formidable, and uh, communism is not compatible with pleasure. Exactly, uh, exactly. So, I think that. The the arrival of capitalism in the 90s, of course, brought back all this hedonism and hebdemonism and consumerism into Eastern Europe. But at a certain point, for Russians, it was something. It became something un- un- uncomfortable. Why? I think because Russian society internally is really based upon certain structures of violence. There is little in the Russian society which is structured horizontally like peer to peer relations you are either in you you are always in the either in domination or subjugative position and i think this culture of violence including the domestic violence including the violence on the workplace uh creates a certain this sadomasochistic uh reality which actually tells you tells citizens that the only thing to sort out problems is violence is expansion is military action and whatever we made a podcast with a very good a friend of mine a very good author british author uh, born in kiev peter pomerantsov which is called russian sadomasochism in our explaining ukraine podcast i think this is this is really one of the important psychoanalytical psychological thing to understand this war why it is supported uh, by so many Russians, not only because of the propaganda and Putinism and whatever, but because they just suffer from so much violence in, in their own lives that they want to kind of export it. They want to, if if you are suffer from so much violence, you should tell yourself, okay, at one particular moment, I will be the man or the woman who will commit violence. I will be the dominant. And either you you do it, or you just feel you're part of the big body, collective body, who is able to uh, to commit violence on others. I saw one quote in uh, in this book of uh, the historian Jaroslav Ritzak. He heard it from ESA. Uh, the the quote uh, quote. In Western Europe, nations are created by politicians. In Eastern Europe, by poets. Exactly. It's a wonderful sentence, but yeah. what does it mean? Well, it means that Eastern European history is a history of the stateless uh, nations in many aspects in, in, in the 19th century. Poles no. were without a state, uh, Czechs were without a state, Slovaks were without a state. Yeah, the non-Russian Eastern uh, states. Yeah, yeah, non, non-Russian, yeah. of course. Uh, yeah. I mean, cent- Central and Eastern Europe, non-Russia, of course. The Baltic countries, Finns at a certain moment, right? Uh, the, the Balkan countries at a certain moment and until certain historical moment. And, and this is interesting uh, because uh, the first comes an emotion, the first comes words, songs, literature, uh, traditions, then, then state institutions. Therefore, for Ukrainians, it's, it's a big challenge to build state institutions. The state institutions that we have 
are in many aspects the remnants of the imperial administration <clears throat> and are not adapted at all to the energy of the U Ukrainian society. So one of the key challenges of what is happening in Ukraine since 2014 is how to make the state institutions kind of reflect the same spirit of the society, the spirit which is freedom-loving, in, in some aspect anarchic, uh, very creative, sometimes very mistrustful to the state, people with lots of initiative to do some things, not very very fond of following the rules, rather fond of, you know, living free, and uh, and the state which is completely different which is which is has completely different history so so it's interesting another interesting thing is that if we take our classical poets like taras shevchenko i think uh, i i don't really know any other culture around us right now who would so much modernize remodernize reread ancient poets like of, of the 19th century because shevchenko is really somebody who you know Rock musicians do the songs with his words. Rappers do the songs with his words. He's kind of a really emblematic. His portrait very often used and reused in, in pop art, in, in whatever else. So he's, he's still there. He's, the he's, still, the, he's still here. 19th he's not, century poets. Yeah, he's not, not a classic. He's really, there are so many paintings uh, painting him in a, in a modern, you know, military uniform. Or whatever. So, so it's yeah. it's interesting how we talk with this with our past, and it's not the past of the library of the archive. It's past which is being reborn. Yeah, I want to read him. I don't know him. It's uh, extraordinary. Another uh, contributor to this book is uh, Vladimir uh, Rafenko, and he considered while fleeing from uh, the occupied Donetsk to agree, quote, "War as the beginning of life." A sad paradox, but there is truth in it, not only for me, but also for many other people who, only when they were in the middle of a war, finally began to understand who they were and where they lived, in what country and what it meant to them. I think this is a sad conclusion that you need uh, war to... Uh, uh, war is a kind of a prerequisite for, uh, to acknowledge who you are. Is it, uh, I don't think he he means it. So to explain to your listeners, Vladimir Rafinka is a, a writer from Donetsk who was writing lots of books in Russian language and uh, quite accepted in the Russian literary circles as well. And uh, in 2014, he was the one who whom the Russians came to protect. And as, as they're doing right now, they're bombing Russian-speaking, mostly Russian-speaking cities. They're, they're killing people who speak Russian language in their, in their daily life. So this is the, the tragic paradox of this Russian ideology. They're that, that they're shell, shelling uh, Kharkiv exactly. uh, for uh, the people they're supposed to defend. Uh, exactly. Now. So they, they, they're defending by shelling, by killing. That's, that's a remarkable also sadistic and macabristic thing. So he fled from Donetsk because he understand, uh, understood that he doesn't want to have anything in common because you should understand that in 2014, 
when when these Russian small groups came to destabilize the situation in Ukraine, there were primarily some you know thugs and people with criminal past and uh, and well some FSB officers as well. So not at all people reading Pushkin and Dostoevsky, uh, completely different type of people, and. Uh, he he fled from Donetsk. He he came to Kiev, and he started writing in Ukrainian as well. He still had to learn Ukrainian. Uh, in, in a way, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this uh, this interesting combination of languages he reflected upon this uh, very in a very interesting way. But what happened now? He actually he set up because I know this place where he set up. It's a, it's a Dutch of another author of this book, Andrei Bonder, who just gave him uh, his house to live. It's near Irpin, and Irpin is a suburb of Kiev near Bucha, uh, which suffered enormously from this uh, this invasion. Irpin. We made a, a film about Irpin. You can go to our YouTube channels, uh, channel Ukraine World. And see a short film of eight minutes about Irpin right now. Uh, it's it's you know half of the buildings are still damaged or destroyed, and it's just a you know bourgeois suburb of Kiev. So he was living there under the shelling, and he was house was trembling. So he was actually needed, to, and and there was a very difficult operation by some people, uh, volunteers to get him out of there as far as I understand. So he was, for the second time, under this Russian threat. And there are so many people who were uh, two times, at least two times, some some of them even three times. Because some people in 2014 fled from Donetsk to Mariupol. Then uh, there was there were attacks on Mariupol. And now Mariupol is, is totally, totally destroyed and captured by the Russians. So imagine a a writer who was considering themselves in a way part of the Russian speaking literature and now this this situation this war uh, has has completely probably changed his mind but it's it's not like to say that it is a boost for his uh, Ukrainian conscience uh, I yeah, guess yeah yeah of course of course and he writes in this essay that look all this mythology about Russian culture in Donbass, this is just bullshit because people in the villages around Donetsk and Luhansk, they speak mostly Ukrainian and their traditions were mostly Ukrainian, etc. If you walk the street here in uh, Western Europe, in uh, Paris, uh, in here in Lausanne, and you see the people walking at the street, uh, what do you think then? We, we, uh, what are we not seeing? Look, I feel what, myself, what are the alarm bells we don't hear? I feel myself a little bit in the matrix. Why? Because this is a beautiful, fantastic world of Western Europe, which I like very much, and fantastic people, and I love being here. But I understand this is an illusion. For me as a Ukrainian, this is not reality. This is a matrix. Uh, the reality is back in Ukraine. Therefore, uh, I'm, I'm doing this kind of a tour from Germany to through France to Netherlands uh, because I think I, I need to tell many stories about what is happening. But of course, I'm coming back to to our reality. Um, you look very um, uh, relaxed. 
<laughs> relaxed. Yeah, you're talking very relaxed, and uh, maybe this is no. this is my this is my kind of a state of mind. Yeah, but we are not relaxed, of course, internally. Um, I think that first, I think that we are really grateful to to the to, to the Western societies for for support for different support different kind of support. Second thing is that we should understand that y- you will never. It's uh, it's impossible t- to transfer the experience of the war by words or by anything. And uh, well, our task is to tell as much as we can. But uh, it's normal that people in in peaceful cities are living their peaceful lives. It's normal that uh, that when they see here the word war is just a word for 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 you for for them but it's it's also important to understand that on on the other part of europe there are the same people with the same we just before that we talked about the podcasting and you know the same the same dreams the same interests who at one one moment are hearing a huge explosion near the house who go to the civilian cars understanding that there are Russian tanks a few kilometers away, who get shot by the Russian soldiers during the evacuation, although they put the the inscription children on their cars. Some people have been burnt alive during this shelling in their cars, and we have seen lots of cars like that. So we should understand that this is going, and... Um, and uh, Ukrainians don't have uh, any other choice. We need to fight uh, because you know this this contemporary Russian culture of violence, unfortunately, is developing in this in this way. They really they really prepared themselves for 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 the war. No, this book, uh, what you uh, contributed to, will help us to uh, to see the backgrounds in this uh, whole conflict. Uh, Vladimir Yermolenko, thanks for your time and for your book. And uh, good luck in your fight for recognition, what's dear to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Dit was een podcast van de Internationale School voor Wijsbegeerte in Leusden. Ik sprak met Vladimir Yermolenko. Hij stelde het boek samen met de titel Oekraïne, Geschiedenissen en Verhalen. Het is verschenen bij ISCW-uitgevers. Mijn naam is Bart Gerards en leuk dat je luisterde naar deze aflevering. In de andere aflevering van de ISW-podcast is er nog veel meer te beluisteren over filosofie en alles wat daarmee samenhangt. En op die podcast kun je je abonneren. Maar laat vooral ook een opmerking achter waar we wat mee kunnen. En beveel deze podcast ook bij vriend en vijand aan. En met deze aflevering vooral bij hen die nog steeds denken dat Oekraïne niet bestaat. Enfin, alle informatie over de ISW... De opleidingen, cursussen en boeken, ook die van Vladimir Jemolenko, vind je op iswb.nl. Tot de volgende keer!